Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. your problem? Are you ready to tell me your secret now? I see stupid people. Not in my dreams, while I'm awake. They don't even know they're done. Go ahead, you can go in. Is it the end of days? Maybe it's the start of a revolution. Did he send you? Is it time? Wait. I have come to take you to him. He wishes to see you in person. Does he know the answer to my question? Can he end my pain? Do you think your pain can have an end? Do I look like I know? Oh, answers. All you care about. How long will this carry on? How long do you want it to carry on? No, seriously. Are you capable of answering a question with anything other than a vague portentous of the question? Why would you ask me something like that? Okay, never mind. Let's go. Go inside. He is waiting for you. You're not coming? You fear going in alone? So you're staying here? Does it make a difference to you that I remain? Right. You realise you're about as easy to pin down as a living member of Project Mayhem at the Daily Roll Call? Do you think that I am... Stop talking. I've had enough. So, where am I? Don't recognise this part of town. Paper Street. Makes sense, I suppose. Oh, what a broken down old building. Doesn't look like anyone's at home. I knew I shouldn't have let the person who kept questioning the sat now do the driving. Oh well. Here goes nothing. Red shirt. I cannot tell you how long I have waited for this moment. Um, hello. Are you... I 
am Lucas. You have sought me for some time, yes? I was hoping you could answer my question. What question? What is the Batrix? The Batrix cannot be explained. It must be experienced for oneself. It is the lie that pervades our very lives. It warps us. It changes us. It makes us wrong. I don't understand. You will. If you take the right path. The right path? Here is a simple choice. You will swallow one of these pills. Take the blue pill and you will fall asleep, dreaming sweet dreams of giant robot spiders. When you wake up, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Take the red pill and I will show you a new world of cutting-edge digital effects and top-class storytelling. Things will be as they should be. Well, one of the pills is red. Uh, my name is Red. What could possibly go wrong? Mm, mm, strawberry flavour. Mmm. Mm, I feel a bit funny. That'll be the midichlorians taking effect. The midi... What? Oh, oh no. You, you tricked me. Something's wrong. <laughs> What's going on? Why am I so thin? How can I possibly be like this after my long, sordid love affair with fried chicken buckets of all shapes and sizes? What the hell's that? Lisa, Mr. Security Droid! No wiggy wiggy for you, base babe! Naughty baby pieces send you down to the basement! No! It's horrible, and I suspect borderline racist. Oh, oh, no, 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 not down the U band. No, no, no. I was swimming around in a giant lake of filth. It's swallowing me whole. How could you lie to me, Lucas? Damn you! Damn you! Stupid racist robots! Nonsensical plot! Damn you! Ian, you're asleep. Oh, thank goodness. The one where Lucas dumped you in a huge ocean of doo-doo again. Yes, that's the one. What have we told you about napping after a hate viewing of The Phantom Menace, Ian? Come on. Time to discuss the films of 1999. Uh, oh, yes, uh, the intro. Okay. Uh, let me think. 1999. Okay. Okay, I've got it, I've got it. <clears throat> Gentlemen, we have a problem. Unfortunately, the first rule of Problem Club is we don't talk about problems. Over to you, Leo. Yes, and uh, welcome to uh, another edition of Revenge of the 80s Kids. And everybody is here today in physical presence, if not quite in spirit. Unfortunately, the wife has a cold. So does Ian, by the way. Yeah, so yes. does Ian, by the sound of things. 
we're, we're here in 1999, and just in case anyone had forgotten or, or, or didn't know or whatever, uh, this is a year that in Entertainment Weekly dubbed the year that changed movies. And uh, so we're going to examine 1999 with that in mind. I mean, this is actually a year with a name in the world of movies. So we're going to see if that's uh, fair. As soon as somebody nominates someone for something like a prize or whatever, you instantly have to say, well, let's compare it with the other things and see if that's uh, a fair uh, summation. But uh, possibly something that wasn't going to win it that award, but was nevertheless jolly good fun, was uh, The Mummy, which, as we didn't reference it in the opening skip, uh, it seems as good a place to start as any. The Mummy, uh, one of my favourite Indiana Jones movies. Discuss. <laughs> I, I like The Mummy, actually. It was a kind of... Um, it was it was a lot of reminiscences of other stuff that I like. Obviously, Indiana Jones, a bit of Jason the Argonauts and thrown in. It didn't feel quite like a classic like Indy did. It was definitely derivative. And, you know, I didn't think this was probably great. But... You know, it was good. It was a good romp and uh, entertaining while I was watching it. I think it was part of that wave of classic villain revivals. We'd had Dracula, we'd had Frankenstein. This is a very different creature because this is good old-fashioned, pulpy adventure fun. But I thought it was it, for me. It felt very much part of that wave of, of what monster can we also bring back? When they're making it, they were commenting that there is no, there is no definitive mummy story. Now, this is a partial remake of a few of them, I think, isn't it? But yeah. there's, there's a surprising little time spent with a man shumbling around in bandages going... The mummy is a, quite a proactive villain who very quickly gets about rebuilding his body. Oh, well, I think that they, they kind of took a few things into account like that. Like they could have, you know, little bits of CG and make them really good or lots of it and make it look like the mummy too, uh, which we'll come to at another time, obviously, because uh, mm-hmm. it, it's coming up. But yeah, so they decided to go with the low-key, fairly good. I mean, the, the, the effects in this are pretty good quality, I, I oh, feel. That's very impressive. I thought, and the, the casting is pretty good as well. I mean, I, you know, I, I always enjoy Brendan Fraser in a film. I thought he works perfectly fine in it. That you want to, uh, the the villain who I've I've, I've totally Arnold Vosloo, the guy, uh, the uh, the bunk, yeah. yes, and Rachel Weisz. I think they were all, you know, I thought they were all doing a good job. Everybody, mm. yeah. I mean, it was it was it was definitely a, a solid piece of casting. I think one of the the things about this that kind of uh, consigns it to the 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 sort of uh, also ran bucket of history is the fact that it's so exceptionally solid. It's just. You can't really go, wow, this is the best thing ever, you have to see it. But at the same time, you sit down to watch The Mummy, you're going to have a good time for a couple of hours. But that's not really something that makes people think, wow, I'm the biggest The Mummy fan ever. And then, of course, it's one of these films that's uh, fallen victim to the diminishing returns in quality of its own sequels. The sequels Uh, are are a bit of a safe chain around its leg whilst it's been dropped into the ocean, hasn't it? You know, really... Does, yeah. you, you, Scorpion King does leap into your mind whilst you're thinking about this movie, which is not a yeah. good thing. No. You watched The Mummy, Sue? I, I have to be honest with you, I am not a big pulp fan, never have been. Never liked things like Indiana Jones very much. Actually loved The Mummy. Really, really loved the, the sense of humour that The Mummy has. I think there's a humour in The Mummy that you just don't get from things like Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones kind of takes itself a bit more seriously. Even though there's quipping in Indiana Jones, I think, you know, it's 
I think the Mummy's got a kind of full-on comedy kind of almost slapstickness to it that's kind of a bit more fun. Well, it's almost like a layer of it has to be. It has. It's like Indiana Jones didn't have to be self-consciously aware of being anything other than a rip-off of pulp magazines, whereas The Mummy has to be aware of being a rip-off of Indiana Jones, which everyone loves. So they have to add yet another... Yeah, I suppose it's another layer of meta-humour. Yeah. It was a bit more slapstick, so I kind of liked that a bit more. It was a bit more silly comedy. I, I like... For you, so I'd imagine it's probably more palatable than... Because I know you, your criticism of pulp is the fact that it's kind of quite... Um, this what can be quite misogynistic, and I think having a kind of an equally strong lead character who's a female probably yeah. helps yeah. Kind of deal, deal with that issue, the less savoury aspects of kind of pulp. It, it is an unusual series in that uh, uh, the the Indiana Jones style figure portrayed by uh, Brendan Fraser. You see, he's uh, in a the, complete idiot, which I can't yeah. like. Yes, he's a complete moron. You know what I mean? Indiana Jones is very capable, and even when you put a woman who's capable with him, he's always more capable. Well, as Brendan Fraser's character, he's a complete idiot. Well, it's he's and it's kind of funny that he's complete. He's a kind of reversal of Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones is an archaeologist who somehow manages to pull off uh, stumbling through his adventure, but they always do a bit where he's at the university to establish. This guy is an archaeologist, so when he gets away with it by the skin of his teeth, that's quite impressive. This guy's supposed to be a mercenary, yeah. and he can't do nothing. Yeah. So, you know, it's just... So, yeah, but I was going to say, it's very unusual in that that character in the sequels is uh, shown to have got married and settled down. They had a different actress in the third one, which, of course, uh, no, is sort of uh, the equivalent, I think, the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor is the equivalent in Mummy to the Mummy franchise of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's a, it's a re- that's a really, that's not a fun time for two hours. But yeah, what they basically yeah. did, they recast his wife. They didn't introduce a new love interest. Uh, that wouldn't have been right. Of that's not family friendly. Isn't it, when you completely paste over the, <laughs> another actress and... Expect the audience to go along with that, no problem. Yes, and my goodness, didn't his young boy really shoot up in the third film as well? Well, it was just—I think it was just the fact that um, Rachel Weisz didn't want to do the third one, and they got a perfectly good actress to be the same character. So you know, there's no problem with that. I don't—that wasn't the problem that the third movie had. No. no. The third movie's problem was if you expected a lot better martial arts considering who was in there and Yes, know, and it was just nothing. it was just I'm, I'm just I'm just bamboozled by the fact that out there there are mummy purists who go, No, the series ended when we had the giant scorpion CGI Dwayne Johnson turn up. <laughs> well there wasn't yeah, the thing about it is, right? That story and script of the mummy returns is actually not that bad. But as basically, if you listen to the commentary on the Mummy Returns DVD, at that point, the point that we all know about, Stephen Summers basically goes, I'm really sorry. I mean, you know, when you're making a film and the first thing they give you before they give you, you know, any actors sign contracts or a script or anything is the day that the movie's going to come out, you know, you might be in a bit of trouble. And, you know, if we'd had couple more months, this would have looked awesome, but we didn't because they had a release date in mind and they wanted to make it, so this is what we got. It's way too much CGI for its own good. It, start, it, it basically totally divorced itself from the pulp feel when you've got CGI thrown at you every second. That's the problem. But we'll, we will talk about this another time. It, uh, the, the Mummy wasn't the only affectionate throwback 
uh, with a sort of its tongue lodged firmly in its cheek this year. But this year, we also had Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Uh, a superior quality product. Yes. That's just... I absolutely adore Galaxy Quest. And I'm not even a huge Star Trek thing, which is parodying, but I just... Yeah, I thought, great idea. Just a great film. I really very entertaining. Even if you're not super into sci-fi stuff, it's just a fun film anyway. But if you get all the references, all the better. Great casting as well. Yep, absolutely. absolutely brilliant casting in that because you know there's some great actors and actresses in that film, and you kind of don't realise it until you sit there watching it, and you're like, hold on a minute, that's Sigourney Weaver, and you got Tim Allen there, and you, you know what I mean? Alan and Rickman, Alan Sam Rockwell, and you get you go sat there going, oh my god, you got all these great actors, and they're really properly, you know what I mean, doing a great job. <laughs> And they and they never made a sequel to it, which is both distressing at the same time good, because this this was such a joy. They're talking about it now. Oh God! No, leave it alone. Leave it alone. It was great. It's been too long. Nineteen ninety nine is too long ago now. Leave it. Everyone have aged too much. Is is it a Star Trek's love letter to itself? I mean, I think I think people who who have been in big sci-fi shows and do the convention circuits uh, this is one of their favorite films they've come out and said it like this is this is so real you know well not that they get sucked into space and fought to fight intergalactic wars very often but you know the whole kind of the intensity of the passion of the fans and the internal jealousies that are going on it all seems like oh yes i can seriously relate to this film it's it's a pleasure so a, a definite joy and i don't watch it often enough Yes, the thing for me is actually I don't I don't think I even went to see it at the time in the cinema. I don't think, not that it didn't appeal. I think it was just one of those ones. I don't think that the distributors really knew what to do with it. Plus, it was a bit of a packed year, so I get the feeling I just didn't get a chance to go and see it at the cinema. But it was a bit of a shame. Then I saw it afterwards. I thought it was perfectly decent. Then I've seen it a couple more times since then. And it's kind of grown on me. The more time, I think it's one of those films that gets better the more times you watch it. There aren't very many of those, but yeah, this is this is definitely uh, yeah, one of them. my favourite bits. Are though you know the planet with the rock monster and the chanting, almost like childlike creatures with the giant teeth going rock monster, rock monster. I love them. I want I want a whole army of those little children type yes. creatures. Love them. So, so uh, yes, from an ironic uh, comedic point of view, it was a good year for Alan Rickman. For not only was he uh, a, a, a knobbly-headed alien in Galaxy Quest, but also he was uh, the Metatron in uh, Kevin Smith's Dogma. Oh, yeah. To date, although apparently this is going to change, Kevin Smith's most extravagant attempt at movie making. I love Dogma. Really? I thought his um, uh, Kevin J. Strike Back movie had a bigger budget. It might have had a bigger budget, but it was... I mean, if you think about it, he was offered The Preacher and he looked at it and eventually went, I can't do this justice, so I'm going to make a film that... like The the, the point is that The Preacher was described by its author... Is Garth Ennis the author? I think he might be. But he was described by the author as... um, you know, a meditation on heaven, hell and all that was in between. And so Kevin Smith, aimed, rather than to do an adaptation of that, to do a film that was about heaven, hell and all that was in between. And this is what he he came up with. And in fact, it was a sort of a key moment in Kevin Smith's career because following this, he kind of took a step back and decided not to try and make any more big sci-fi action movies because he was like, I can't do it. 
Well, also, no, no. I, think, I think the death threats may have, may have numbed his enthusiasm slightly as well. What death threats are those, Ian? Please do tell. Well, because of uh, because it is uh, it's a dogmas of uh, film uh, meditation on on Catholicism, isn't it? And uh, some people cannot take even the most uh, mildest of lampoonings of religion uh, uh, and their religious uh, figures. Kevin Smith is deeply embroiled in the Star Wars fandom. Catholics ain't got nothing on those ones when you say, you know, Ewoks suck. Someone's going to come up with you. <laughs> probably suicide bombing and all that kind of stuff over Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say, to be honest with you, I, I love dogma. And I, I was raised with a Catholic grandmother on one side of my family. Wiccan on the other, oddly. Um, but yeah, I was... I love Dogmore. I think it's a fabulous film, and I think if a religion can't take mock itself a little bit, fuck off. Sorry, get over yourself. Well, well, I do agree. But that's but the thing. The thing about it is though that I think what really got him down was the fact that a lot of reviewers picked particularly one moment, which is where the poo monster is uh, like the causing shit monster. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was causing havoc in the bar. And he, and what Kevin Smith chose to do was focus on people watching that and kind of doing the comic, ooh, ah, ooh. And they were like, if you're going to make a big fantasy sort of, even if it's a sort of religious comic fantasy, we want to see the things that you're looking at, not the people looking at the things. It's a bit, and he realized, and he said, you know, at that point, I realized I was all about dialogue and character and, you know, like, I couldn't sacrifice uh, what I felt was a really funny character moment to do a big visual spectacle. And then I realised, hey, I'm supposed to be making a big visual spectacle. So he kind of backed up. I think that was possibly more. He realised his approach to the craft of filmmaking was not compatible with... Like, you know, I, it makes you start to think about Kevin Smith's Transformers... Yeah. <laughs> all directors should be as self-aware as Kevin Smith and not make things that they aren't, you know, they can't do. Or yeah, you're listening, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> uh, Tarantino. I, I remember finding it a little bit impenetrable. I have to say, when I first watched it, I, I improved with age for me. But the first time I watched it, not really being much of a, a aficionado on religion, just my head was hurting trying to take in everything, and and uh, it wasn't. An easier watch as some of his. Do you mean? Do you mean the kind of Christian mythology aspect of it all? Yeah, some of it is quite heavy. Yeah. Um, like, there are discussions that are, you know, in-depth discussions about the nature of Christianity and religion. And I, for my brain at that point, I was like, you know, this was like more work than trying to work out what was going on in the Matrix. So what you're, so what you're saying is that that Justin, that you could have done with uh, slightly less reference into the deep parts of religion in the movie first time around. First time around, yes. So you but... must have loved End of Days starring Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> then. Okay, I just want to get this out there now. Uh, the big proof this is all foretold in the Bible is, of course, the scene where that Catholic priest goes, in dreams, numbers are often reversed. So 666 upside down becomes 999, and this is the year 191999. It's like, the book of Revelations would have been written in Greek. They don't use the same numeral system we use now. We got those from the Muslims. Oh, forget it. <laughs> so, anyway. There indeed is what happens if you think too hard about yeah. any days. <laughs> 
starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, yeah, not not. This is um, this is the point post Batman and Robin where Arnie had what I like to term the wilderness years. <laughs> this is the point at which the, the sour taste of, of Mister Freeze had clung to the usually unassailable biceps of the Austrian oak. And yeah. so he was forced into, I'm trying to reinvent myself. Yeah, I need to do something, give me an excuse that I can't get involved with films for a while. Hang on a minute. I'll get there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I remember I went to see End of Days, and I think there was a point, there was a, uh, a certain segment of Arnie's audience in the late 90s that had a sort of lingering affection, was still watching Terminator 2 all the time and all this. I was among these people. And so they went to see End of Day, so it didn't completely... It wasn't a, it wasn't a complete disaster at the box office, but, oh my, it made you suffer for being a, an Arnold supporter, that film. It really did. Watched it again in preparation for the show. Ugh. It's it, just... It, in fairness... He does, he does throw himself onto a giant spike at the end. I feel in many ways that was his apology to the audience. <laughs> it's, it's not a very good anything. It's not a very good Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It's not a very good supernatural movie. Gabriel Byrne is just so dull as the devil. Yes. I mean, really. How, how, uh, how, how can you make Satan not interesting? It was, it was, I mean, this is the after devil's advocate, isn't it? I mean, you know, yes, the last person to portray the devil on the big screen in a major way, Al Pacino. <laughs> what are you going to do, Gabriel? Well, I'm going to do something completely different to Al. You know how Al was charismatic and exciting and, and you hung on his every word and you weren't sure, you know, he was dangerous. I'm just going to go for the opposite of that. Yes. <laughs> I will just... possess someone's body, randomly kiss someone, and when I walk out the restaurant, it explodes. No reason, just, you know, devil. Exploding. <laughs> exploding things. There must be. Yeah, that's the thing. As an action movie, it's remarkably incoherent because, yes, things explode and there's, like, rooftop chases and, and, and there's shootings and all sorts of things like that. But they all seem to happen out of nowhere for no particular reason. Yes. I mean, it's one of the great lessons in how not to make an action movie. Something it probably has in common with Wing Commander, which I imagine only I and Sue have seen. Probably. I haven't seen it. The reason you, most people in this room probably haven't seen it is because it didn't get a cinema release in this country. It went straight to DVD and not even straight away after that. It's quite obscure. Now it has turned up on Netflix UK. So I imagine it's probably in Netflix US as well. Wow. So, you know, in running to see that then quickly. In the spirit of in the spirit of research, I watched it last night. It's not terrible. I mean, right. that, that is damning with faint <laughs> praise. That is a dictionary <laughs> definition of damning with faint praise. <laughs> yeah. It, it, right. I mean, you know, it's got some problems. Problem number 1. It stars Freddie Prinze Jr. Um, there's one point at which they're doing this whole thing about, oh, we've got to fly past the, ge the, the gravitational anomaly, and then someone has to explain, oh, yes, if we get too close, then it will be sucked in and crushed, uh, we will be crushed into a tiny little singularity, and we'll never emerge, and it will just be like, we'll never escape from its gravitational pull. And I couldn't help thinking, yes, Freddie Prince Jr., they are describing your career as you are <laughs> Buffy's husband. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're never going to get away from the fact that your your most biggest claim to fame is that you were married to Sarah Michelle Gellar. So just get over it. He's also Freddie Prince's son, which is his other claim to fame. Yeah. His dad died young. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the other problems that it had... Well, I mean, its biggest problem, I think, is not even its fault. Wing Commander is, of course, based on the uh, semi-popular series of PC games... Uh, most famous for the fact that they always pushed the, spe- the current technological specifications of PCs at the time to the point where there, it was a game so swish, virtually nobody could play it. Also, it starred Mark um, Hamill. Yes, and it had Mark Hamill in some FMV sequences in between and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's a video game movie, which doesn't help. And the second thing is that they wanted it to be a cheap video movie, video game movie cash-in that was going to bank on a goodwill left from people being in such a terribly good mood after watching Star Wars Episode One. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I think my issue with it was that it was a bit... Star Wars Episode One meets Top Gun but with really, really bad effects. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's cheap. Really, really, really. I mean, these people are basically stood in corridors with metal over their heads as, as the main command deck. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, well... It's like, okay, so it's really, really dirt cheap. You've got a few actors in there. Your special effects are absolutely atrocious. The, the dog creatures that are coming at you oh, those are were the hilarious. worst effects I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, you've basically got this premises that, you know, they're all a bit rebellious. The two leads are a bit rebellious. They're a bit rebellious. Fly-by-night cowboys, space commander kind of flyers, you know, which is the plot to Top Gun. You know, (laughs) and everybody thinks they're rebels, you know, and they get somebody killed and, oh, oh, you've got somebody killed, oh, you know, plot to Top Gun, anybody. You know, and then they have to redeem themselves. Oh, you know, plop the top gun, anybody. But it's in space and very badly special effect. And as you said, it was based on the idea that people would go and see the Phantom Menace and then go and see this and think, oh, it's, it's fine. No, no, it will, that, that people would come out of the Phantom Menace with a space opera itch to scratch. I can't wait for episode two. Let's go and watch Wing Commander. Whereas what people went came out of uh, episode one doing was going... I need to go and have a little sit down and not go anywhere near space opera for quite a while. Which, but if anybody uh, did go see Wingerman, then they were just going to be even more disappointed. So. Oh, I don't think. I mean, I think you walk into Wing Commander knowing what you're going to. The, the, it did make some big mistakes. Um, I mean, one of it the was things. Terrible. Sorry. It one was of the terrible. yeah. One of the things that it did make me notice is that it tried to do this thing, which I think is quite clever in concept. Where <laughs> it went well, spaceships they're like submarines, aren't they, or ships? You've got a limited amount of space available. So I think they probably used like ships, like abandoned ships or whatever for the set. And it was all very tight and they had those uh, silly doors up. Yes, it was very claustrophobic, which is fine in the submarine movie. But what you suddenly realise is that most spaceships in most space operas have this ridiculous amount of capacious, you know, the bridge of the Enterprise, the corridors of the Enterprise. They're not very efficient. They're wide enough for four people to walk down them abreast. And you suddenly realise, gosh, this is all rubbish, isn't it? There's a, you, that, that is, you wouldn't do that because it's very expensive and it's engineeringly dodgy. And then, in fact, the Wing Commander model was probably more realistic. However... It's just so oppressive. There's no fun in it. 
So yeah, it, I mean, it, it just was beset by all these different issues, like, yeah, uh, and, and it was a bit weird that the cast was cut between people who were barely in their twenties and um, people like David Suchet and David Warner and you know other venerable actors from the old actors' home, and so you had this thing like, where are all the people between the ages of twenty-four and forty-eight? Just out of interest, just wondering. Yeah, they all died. That might have been that highly, you know, specific kind of laser that they built that <laughs> just got rid of that demographic of the audience. Yeah, the bits that are worth watching right at the end, just for the. Te- I mean, these are really, these are sub nineteen fifty special effects. Wow, they've got these. Um, the the enemy who are usually in spaceships are called the Kill Rafi. And they've basically put shop tailor dummies in weird kind of plastic space marine armour and stuck a rubber green dog's head on top of it where the <laughs> lips kind of move a bit if you've got someone's hand, making them go like this. And the, it's like they're the worst special effect ever. And then right at the end, proudly, the second credit or something is um, Creature Effects by Animal Workshop. I'm like, they never worked again. No. Good grief. They would, I could have done better with wow. a bin bag and a football. With because a, I'm a masochist. A because I'm a masochist and I did see Phantom of the Menace twice, then I really probably should see this just for, just for the, what you described there. I mean, the other thing is it's like an hour and 40 minutes in length, right? Which is not terribly long but when you think there's 20 minutes at the beginning where they all cob about on a spaceship talking to one another and advertising Johnny Walker whiskey for no good yeah, reason um, you Walker. think you think you really needed to cut that down an 80 minute movie would have been a good it might have sort of more chance of being a bit of a, a B movie romp that might have lived but an hour and 40 minutes is way too long for this stuff it, it really is I think that's uh, all that there possibly should ever be said about uh, <laughs> Wing Commander, really. The other thing that we watched last night, which isn't on the list because it's not really inside our thing, but it is worth mentioning because of the the strange career of the director. We watched uh, Go again, which is on Netflix. It is a really strange movie. It's kind of about kids sort of going and partying and doing stuff that was like... It's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit the hangover meets, you know what I mean? Hangover meets train spotting yeah. in a sort of land where they play late 90s electronic dance music such as Fat Boy Slim. Now, the reason I mention this is because the director here is Doug Lyman, whose previous movie was Swingers, which gave Vince Vaughn and John hey. Favreau their start. Then he did this. So he did Swingers, which is about sort of men in their 30s getting back on the dating scene. Then he did Go, which is about 20-somethings being involved with the rave scene and, and getting into shenanigans in Las Vegas. And then the very next film he made, The Bourne Identity. Wow. You see how that's a surprise? <laughs> and then he goes on to make, uh, like, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. He made Edge of Tomorrow this year, of course. And, uh, yeah, Doug Lyman is a very strange filmmaker. Admirable, but very strange. So, yeah, I watched that. And, it, yeah, that was... Uh, uh, so we we might need proof of identity. It's the same person. He might well have had that stolen. <laughs> <some point. laughs> I, was, I was trying to get into the sort of 1999 frame of mind. And... I think it was pretty typical of, of a sort of end of 90s 
sort of it's a chrysalis movie. On the one hand, it has a lot of rubbish 90s things in it, like a big dance music soundtrack. Katie Holmes. Yeah, it's got Katie Holmes from Dawson's Creek in it, in her first film uh, appearance. Before she um, married Tom Cruise and became... Movie. Well, that was that's not for ten years after that oh, yet, but whatever. It, it's got, like, a non-linear plot line because, of course... That's so hot right now, we're still getting over Pulp Fiction. It's got all of these 90s things in it that are just a bit lame. But then it's kind of slightly witty and it's aware of its own stupidity. And there's a sort of a meta-narrative plot twist, which I won't go into, but it's like that's actually quite clever. So you can see the sort of the 2000s being born out of the out of the late 90s. Like this is a movie that should have been terrible, but the things that were going to come up in the following decade had started to make this movie a bit smarter than perhaps it should be. Two people it had in it that have, will become relevant as we go through the 2000s. Timothy Oliphant in what must have been one of his first screen appearances, looking about 12. He didn't do so much in cinema, but he was in a lot of HBO stuff, has uh, is, is been really big. He's been really big in television. And then there's this one point where two guys go to a door, knock on it, and it's opened by Melissa McCarthy, looking about 12. It's just weird. So there we go. That was. I think that kind of sums up sort of late 90s, dramatic cinema it was a bit weird because of course this was the year of american beauty that was a bit weird as well and sad but that's not what we're here to talk about oh yes one of the reasons american beauty was one of the reasons that this was called the year that changed movies another thing that made this the year that changed movies according to entertainment weekly was the blair witch project and the beginning of found footage horror movies. Oh God! Look, look. When I was in you call it you college, Leo, I was making you know found footage horror movies set in haunted houses and stuff. So when this thing came out, I was like, oh, it's so it was like, no, this is stuff you can do on entry level. Why is everyone so amazed by this? Well, they were so amazed by it. They're doing it to this day. I know. They got they got better though to be honest because I don't know some of them are still terrible. Well, they're not. Well, it's horror films and you know there's not really hugely there's not a vast amount of fantastic films in the horror genre. I'm sorry, but the the biggest insult to me is we watched a movie a couple of weeks ago called The Chernobyl Diaries. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now that's not a found footage horror movie. No, but they just shot it like it was. Yes. But at some point in the film, you realise, oh, there is no cameraman. The camera's just walking around and being all shaky because oh. they couldn't be bothered to buy a tripod. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah, the Blair, I remember there was a lot of, there obviously there was a lot of attention and who are about it, and I just went, well, the last three seconds is about cre- a bit creepy. Nothing. There's nothing. Nothing. Thank you. I'm with Ian on this one. It's it's just no. They made a big mistake with this movie. If you were outside of America, you had no chance of finding this movie creepy and effective. Because the whole thing in the States was that they did this big marketing campaign where that people were like, the internet was new, people still believed everything they read on the internet, and they did this thing where they mocked up a website and they made it look like it was real. And when they first released it in the States, people were still in some doubt 
as to whether it was a real thing or not. I mean, obviously it's not, but I mean, quite clearly it's not. I think people quite quickly got the idea that it would, that they'd yes, been uh, fooled by children, a big Children, people Bible born Bible. before the millennium were stupid as well. So you can yeah, rest yeah. easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but the point is that they had that extra, and I think if you do, if you have that kind of Carnivalia idea, I don't is know. Anybody, if, is anybody else thinking War of the Worlds all over? No, no. I, yeah, I don't. Christ, I don't know if this is real thick. or not. Then maybe you might find something in it that is kind of effective, and it's a, you know, it's a one-up. It's just like a cheap trick. But then they did the usual thing they do used to do with film things. I mean, I find it's more usually the opposite way now, uh, that it's very unusual for a film to get a staggered release. Like, you get find out a film's got a staggered release where it's coming out four months later in the other territories than it is in, in the US. And you're like, really? That long? Blimey, that's a long time. But uh, the Blair Witch had that usual thing in 1999. It would come out in the US, and then months later it came out in the UK, and by then everybody knew what was what, and you were walking into it knowing it was just some rubbish horror movie. I, can so, just, I guess I'm, I'm just thinking of someone watching it in the meantime on like a video going, hmm, Cold is not very good. I better go watch this in the cinema then, eh? Oh dear, yeah. It's just terrible though. It's absolutely atrocious, even if you believe for five seconds that's real. It's terrible. It felt like it was, it actually was like a student film because it was kind of amateurish in places and just, you know, someone who didn't really know how to tell a good story because it's. Yes, this is clearly improbable. Boring. Boring. Yes, a terrible, terrible film. And, you know, really, I mean, they couldn't sustain it, obviously, this idea that it might be real. Uh, not really one of uh, cinema's greatest twists. And talking of cinema's greatest twists, The Sixth Sense. I saw, it, segue. I saw it coming a mile away. Oh, you did, but then you often are quite uh, perceptive in that manner, Sue. But, I mean, I don't know many people who I think I know, I know people who've done it, and I think there are two types of people in this world. People who saw it coming and people who didn't. And that's the end of my wisdom on that. No, (laughs) I think the difference between people who see it coming and people who don't is that the reason I didn't see it coming is because I was watching the film and I was enjoying the film and there was no reason for there to be what a twist. I mean, the twist makes sense, but it's not really about that. It's about something else. So I was watching that other film, the film that doesn't need a twist. I was, you know, concerned with the dramatic... I was enjoying the film. Oh, yeah, no, 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 but... It's possible for someone to get so absorbed, I'm, I'm looking at it in this manner, that then when the twist comes, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Ah, oh, you got me. The one you got I me, didn't you... see was Unbreakable. Yeah. I didn't I... see that one. Now, we'll discuss that more at the time, but yes. Yeah, but... The Sixth Sense twist, I think, it worked for people who were so wrapped up in the other story, the story about the little boy, they didn't even stop to question all of the stuff that leads up to the twist. And then you go and watch it again. And you go, oh, I see. You're very clever. Ah, yes. Shyamalama Ding Dong in, the, in his glory days. His glory days of two films. Uh, I didn't see it was coming. Some but, people say three, and some people are unkind enough to say one. Oh, it should be this one. No, it's definitely two. But, um... Uh, I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't see the twist coming, but then I, I didn't know there was a, a twist thing going on. I saw this on an airplane flying over to Australia. These are incredibly long flights, can I just say, and you are somewhat sleep deprived and slightly insane after a while. You just feel like you're perpetually traveling. So 
watching a film about ghosts who don't know that they're ghosts, you be, I began to speculate if I died in a horrible plane accident, was in fact <laughs> in some kind of eternal limbo, forever travelling on planes and through airports. It was just a very disturbing experience. <laughs> oh, bless you. Uh, wow, gosh. No, I don't think we can top that. Oh, to um, weirdly, uh, as you've just said that, this is a, an interesting one because I didn't go and see the F- Fight Club when it was first new. In oh, it, it was ruined for me. And Adam and because Joe I ruined had, it for me. Right, because I had no... Oh, they saw it oh, no, at all. I didn't. I just saw what it was apparently about, and and, and in fact, the it, Fight Club, I think, really defeated journalists because Pitt Norton et al. Uh, Fincher were not really interested in telling people what the film was really about. They were just like, "Come and see it. Come and see for yourself." So, and they even said that to journalists. The journalists were like, "Well, there's this weird film about Edward Norton and Brad Pitt doing bare knuckle boxing in basements. I'm not really sure." And he was like, "Yeah, that sounds terrible. I think I'll give that a miss." I don't even know, actually, why it is that I ended up going to see it in the end, about a year after it came out. I went to see it at an actual, like one of these art house cinemas that gets films after they've finished their general run. That's how little I was interested in it. And I remember, much as Ian's experience with The Sixth Sense, sitting in the, the cinema and getting to a point at which I was like, I don't see how they're going to end this. I think the only way you could possibly end this movie is by releasing poison gas into the cinema and killing the entire audience. That's the only fitting conclusion to this madness. Obviously, that didn't happen, um, and it did have an, an ending, which was, I would possibly say, more satisfying than being killed with poison gas. But I don't know if that's controversial. The ending of Fight Club, more satisfying than being killed with poison gas, everyone? I, I, I had never seen, I didn't see it when it came out. I don't know why it wasn't on my radar. It just wasn't the sort of film I would have gone to, see, gone and seen at the time. But Adam, <laughs> Adam and Joe on their TV show, Lady parodied it with a sketch with teddy bears called the Tufty Club, in which the twist is essentially played out for me. It's like, oh, oh, right. So when I eventually did see Fight Club and I thought, what a great film, I was in full knowledge of what the twist was the whole time. That is, un- that is, I would say, I mean, this is the thing. 1999 had not just one, but two films where the twist was not essential, but I think that if you got caught by Sixth Sense and by Fight Club, your life is a little bit richer for that one time when you go, oh, I see, like that, you know, it's just... Yay, good to be stupid. Um, maybe because I really try and avoid anything to do with pre-publicity of films and... And if there is a hint of a twist, I will actually avoid everything. And I hate, I hate knowing that. So I didn't know anything about uh, Fight Club when I went to see it. So yeah, I was, I was very impressed actually. Uh, and again, I was liking the, I was enjoying the film anyway. But it's true that twist does give you a, a fantastic insight into the working of Edward Norton and his character, and you know, and all the more disturbing for it. What what's up? You're gonna hate me. I never really liked Fight Club. To this day, I still really don't like Fight Club. I hate um, you. <laughs> there you go. I told you you'd all hate me. Huh. Um, I find it quite difficult, and I think I find it quite difficult because, to me, I was watching again somebody's descent into madness, and to me, I kind of knew when I was watching it what I was watching. Um. I don't remember having it spoilt for me. I think I just kind of knew what I was watching. 
if you know what I mean. I think I think for me it was very difficult because I kind of knew what I was watching. Hmm. And I don't like watching things like I find it very difficult watching things that are that dis- that kind of mental illness disturbed kind of you know what I mean. Yeah. That's just me because it's my it's one of my pet things that I I find difficult with. So I I struggle with that. I kind of struggle with that kind of level. So. Well, I think what's really interesting is that, um, in fact, Chuck Palahniuk's kind of made a career out of uh, taking various types of mental illness and writing novels around them. And I think the reason that Fight Club hit so big is because it's a particular kind of depression, schizophrenia, sociopathy, that uh, I think a lot of people, particularly men, kind of dance around the edge of. Because it's, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think it's not unusual to find women who are not really that into Fight Club because it is one of the most masculine films ever made. It's about all things that men worry about. There is no femininity in Fight Club, particularly, I would say. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a brutal film, you know, visually, kind of story-wise... It's not as brutal because that's I don't mind but... brutal. This is yeah. what I'm saying. I'm it's... one of those few people on the planet who, as a woman, really doesn't mind brutal. I am. I am hey. a big horror fan. Well, I am a big women. Women fan. can be brutal too. Just go this and watch is... Carrie. Well, this is what I'm saying. You lot have known me years by now. You should know by now. I'm quite strong woman who's quite brutal in my own sense i'm quite it's, a, i'm talking specifically about masculinity it's very masculine yeah it's, it's like the whole thing of you know when they see the model on the bus and it's like oh is that what a man should be and then the fighting is is very like this whole construct of of being male and, and that is the point it's obsessed with that it's a it's a step through an obsession with maleness and even the the only female character that's really in there is her, is, is uh, Marla Singer Helena Bonham Carter's character in there and she's quite a tough little character but she's tougher in in an insane way in an insanely female way so it's kind of a stark nasty contrast to I would probably say the only character that displays kind of femininity really is probably the character played by Meatloaf who's yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, that kind of a count, counteracts that kind of. So it's a bit of a weird one. It's kind of, you know, as is because I'm, I, I can, I can do brutal. I can do nasty. I'm quite a gruesome, nasty kind of girl. I can kind of get down and dirty. I really struggle with, with that kind of male mindset and that kind of really, and that kind of insanity. So yeah, I, I I don't know why, but that's that's kind of something I struggle with. So there there are many movies that people have struggled with, and and you know several of them came out in 1999. Before we get on to the obvious uh, uh, <laughs> Jar Jar in the room, uh, let us take a couple of the others: Wild Wild West and the remaking of The Haunting. Both of which came out this year. I like the remake of The Haunting. Well, you liked it. It ended Jander Bont's career. So, you know, he probably... I prob- liked the remake. He made it. He's probably not that keen on it anymore. Was, it, was Liam oh, Nielsen in this movie? Yes, he yes. was. For me, it wasn't as exciting as it should have been. It was right. very... I know the original is quite slow-paced, I remember, but it didn't seem to capture that. The, the Haunting... Yeah, the haunting is like the closest I think you could ever get 
to Michael Bay directing a haunted house movie. Yeah. It's like the, the most haunted house movies and in fact, you know, found footage stuff and all this, they rely. Paranormal activity is totally, of all the things it does wrong, this, this isn't one of them. It relies on, oh, and then the pen, the pencil jar fell over and the pencils fell out, but there was nothing to push it over. And it's supposed to play on you like that. Yeah. It's supposed to be like, and then the door slammed shut and there was no one to slam it shut. We weren't even in the room. We don't know what was happening. Oh, it's creeping me out. This is like, and then the mantelpiece grew giant lion's heads. I think that's right. I mean, for me, it didn't lack any, it had a lack of atmosphere, you know, it yes. didn't have any, I, I feel when like it was I, there, it was obvious. There's, there's a bit in The Man with Two Brains where Steve Martin, uh, after the death of his wife, uh, meets, uh, the, the character who's, uh, good looking but is terribly horrible to him when they get married. And he's, uh, he stands before the, uh, and says, if there's anything that, that you want to tell me about not marrying her, let me know, just send me a sign. And the, the paintings rattle and the sky <laughs> darkens and the, there's, there's thunder and lightning and a voice going, no, no, don't do it. And then all rise down and see Martin goes, any sign, anything at all. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's just that idea that, you know, it's that unsubtle. It's like a gag in a Steve Martin movie. It's it's and the whole thing. That's why I kind of like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, in retrospect, it's a bit of a fun romp. Yeah, in retrospect, it's a bit of a fun romp. But when you take a movie that's supposed to be intensely psychologically disturbing, yes. and say, I might put that on for an hour and a half as a fun romp, you can see that it's failed in just about every important. I just like Owen Wilson being beheaded. I think. That really well, well why not? I don't know if I've seen this film or not. I think I have. I can't be sure. It sort of fell into a sort of vague soup where I think oh, I've you, seen you'll it. You'll know if you've seen Owen Wilson being beheaded. Oh, I, I, <laughs> oh I've seen it. Oh, he sees that every night in his <laughs> dreams. Yes. So. Uh, but, I, uh, tend this, I tend to get this film confused with Scary Movie 2, which parallels <laughs> quite a lot of it. So yeah, every time I think I'm remembering it, I'm no, sure no. it's from that. What I've had... Half its fodder without the, without that film, and I love scary movie too. So you know, there you go. <laughs> so, there we go. Well, that, well what was, better can you say? Well, um, um, I scary I, movie stop! Movie. My God, trying to get a word later this round two is kind of impossible. No, I was just going to say, and it's not really not a very interesting point, but Liam Nilsson, this was a bad year for him, making film-wise, because he did this, and he also did another film we should be discussing later. And basically, the whole experience of this on, on Hollywood, he basically did say the statement, I'm done making films for Hollywood. His experiences this year were that bad, with production and the sort of, um, you know, the, po- the sales of a film afterwards. It's just the machine of it all depressed him immensely. There we go, I'm done. You may resume your conversation. Uh, well, uh, maybe we can resume it with a giant robot spider because it was going to come out eventually because John Peters, the producer, was determined to shoehorn it in somewhere. So after the uh, the amazing success of Barry Sonnenfeld and Will Smith in uh, Men in Black, they decided to go on to have what was bound to be the fun summer romp that was Wild Wild West, one of the most <laughs> tedious movies ever made. Well, yeah, it's, it's certainly lacking quite a lot of things. I, I think I saw it on, on DVD rather than the cinema. But, uh, it was kind of like a, a good idea, but it just 
nothing seemed to be happening most of the time. And it just... I, I'll tell you how bad this film is for me. I have seen it in bits. I've right. never actually sat and watched it all the way through. I, I have seen the beginning, I've seen the middle, I've seen the end, but in in separate sittings because I cannot sit. And I, I, yeah, I left it until it was on television. Yeah. And yeah. I'm talking, I'm not talking like, oh, it's a big Christmas movie. I'm talking about ITV2 was just showing it round yeah. and round yeah. and round and went, oh, it's starting now, I'll watch this, shall I? And, yeah, I ended up watching it in bits. It's so boring. Yeah. I mean, you know, Steampunk's fine. It's, it's good fun. Wild West is good fun. So you would have thought putting those together would be a killer combination. But I don't know. Will Smith annoyed me in that film because he's so anachronistic that that keeps jarring you with the central kind of point of the plot. He's just he doesn't really fit in. Yeah, it's... he should. They should have. I know. I understand why he was in it. But yes. they had someone who could have played that role more authentically. So also, wasn't it criticised for its ableist humour as well? Because the, the Branner's character is only half a man, literally, and much humour was derived out of that, and they felt that was somewhat anti-disabled. Uh, yeah. I think that's the least of the film's problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, mocking Wild Wild West, the film is mocking the disabled. So. Must admit, the you know the only generally interesting bit in it is that giant spider, which stands out like a you know as if someone just had this weird idea to put a giant spider in a film, regardless. No, 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 no. no. The only good thing that ever came out of Wild Wild West was Eric Cartman doing his. Well, you know what, Wild West thing every time he did his South Park. There you go. Yeah, it's certainly not a film that I would want to revisit. <laughs> It's, you know, devoid of a lot of things I like in film, like interesting plot and characters. And yeah. while, we, while we're talking about terribly disappointing cardboard characters, underwhelmingness in an action setting, uh, it should be mentioned in passing that uh, James Bond was out and about this year. World is not enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Um, I, always, I, think, I think this was the year I went, yeah, the world is not enough. Please stop making modern films. That is that the one with the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the oil pipe tycoon Christmas Jones I love, I love the fact that during these Brosnan years every time we mention one of the Brosnan bonds Justin goes is that the one where <laughs> the only one I can clear in my mind is Goldeneye that's because I played the game so much Oh, it's kind of merged together. It's because the titles are stupid. They all mean the same thing. It's fact. Well, you know, yeah, they needed to make a, a distinct title is, that no possibly confused for another one. Like I don't know, Quantum of Solace or something. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's like it is like a Justin's kaleidoscope of a memory. It shall shake it, and you, it reforms all the bits into a brand new, reconstructed Piers Brosnan film. <laughs> yes, uh, this is the one with what's his name. Uh, is a, a villain who can't feel any pain and he's fallen in love right. with an heiress to, a, to an oil fortune. It's a shame that the audience don't have that ability. Yes. It's always quite painful. <laughs> but it was, it was one where they tried to involve uh, Dame Judy Dench a lot more by having her be personally invested in this young heiress and things like that. So, Actually, Yeah, I just remember, all I remember really sad to say is the fact that well, that Bond girl is quite attractive, and that's about it really. I can remember Let's... a dome, I can remember a, a, a running around inside a satellite dish Let's, let's take a, let's take a positive view on on the world's not enough. Okay. It's not die another day. So you know that's the best I can say about it. Uh, further example uh, of damning with fame praise can be found here. Yeah, uh, this is the year, though. I mean, I suppose we're going to have to get round to it now. 
This is another reason why uh, it's the year that changed movies. Star Wars Episode <laughs> One came out. Okay, okay, gentlemen. Okay, here we are. We've got picture the scene. I'm in a cinema watching this movie. We have Liam Neeson walking through Tatooine Market with Natalie Portman, who is going to be Princess Leia's mother. This is moments away from meeting Anakin Skywalker, the man who will one day become Darth Vader. They've just fled the planet of Naboo, which has been invaded by an army of robots, and right now they are being hunted by Palpatine, who has sent after them a tattooed man with a double-bladed lightsaber, and I am looking at my watch and I am bored. How is this possible? Well... I think, you know, we all like the opening scroll to set the scene in the Star Wars films. Quick, we must send the jury, we must rewrite the tax code. Trade agreements. It's like, you're going, oh my God, this is going to be dull. Yeah. Um, That is one thing that Wing Commander has over the Phantom Menace. After the first 15 minutes, you thoroughly understand what's going on. It's after that it gets into a bit of the soup. But at the beginning, you're like, there's an alien force. It's going to get to Earth. The Our forces cannot get there for another two hours. They're spaceships. In two hours, they can pretty much wipe out Earth. We have to do something. That's the setup to Wing Commander. After that, they completely yeah. screw it up. But at least you understand what's going on. Bear in mind, everyone's been waiting for a new film for 30 years. You know, and or whatever it is by this stage, 20, 25 years, or whatever, and, and then and you kind of go, oh, inauspicious start then to this. It fight. is the worst okay. Star Wars film, undoubtedly. I mean, the highlights really of the pod race, and that could have been like an opening cartoon. Really, I would have gone home then because that's all entertaining. It's got no, nothing really to do with the plot. I got over the kind of sugar rush that I got from the. And also the cynicism was beginning to go in from the from the reworked original film. So I wasn't it's not exactly like a huge fanboy at this stage. But you know, I'm, hey, it's a new Star Wars film. But I kind of it yeah, it, it didn't really affect me in the way in the giddy way that I was hoping. It was kind of like, oh okay. Well and not only did it not affect you, you were bored and it was like Coke that lost all the fizz. What's the point? I think I think there is also a point at which not only was it fairly dull and it just kind of a huge letdown, not even passable as a kind of, you know, it's not like maybe I went in with my expectations too high. But in those first few minutes, when those members of whatever Galactic Trade Federation appeared on the screen and went, no, you will not get through our blockade, you went, Oh my god, that's racist. <laughs> but felt is Watto Italian or is he Jewish? I can't tell. Yeah, there are three pretty awful groups of characters uh, that are racial stereotypes in that, which are, you know, the, the kind of flying Troy Dacian or whatever it's called, mm. who's very kind of obviously kind of Jewish, kind of Arabic All kind of. What matters to me is money. Yeah, uh, then you've obviously got Jar Jar Binks, of which I'm not going to say much more. Yeah. And, and you've got those those creatures at the beginning. Well, I think I think really Jar Jar Binks deserves a little place uh, in in infamy because the whole reason why that went down quite as badly as it did is because George Lucas was obsessed that this was going to be the Ewok, or that the Gungan was going to be yeah. the Ewok of Star Wars Episode One. And pre-produced all the merchandise. So for quite a while, you couldn't go into any store without seeing Jar Jar staring at you with bloody backpack straps hanging from his stupid ears. Yeah. And and the thing about it was, he became a symbol, and indeed, to George Lucas, of the complete and utter failure of this prequel trilogy. 
that, that Jar Jar takes the rest for the whole thing. You know, this part of it's confusing. If you're an avid, I mean, midi Corians, I was almost practically unforgivable. Mm. Because you take something that is meant to be magic and then you make it science. And well, it was a life that, force, wasn't it? It was the life that, energy. That energy cha- fundamentally changes the films because, you know, it's meant to be mystical. Well, he explains, you can explain he explains some he, that doesn't need explaining and he doesn't explain things that do need explaining. Now, after Star Wars, if I asked you, Star Wars New Hope, if I asked you, what is a Jedi? You can go, oh, well, in the old days of the Grand, Grand Republic, they were these noble knights that defended justice and peace. You know, and if, after, after watching Phantom Menace, I ask you, what is a Sith? We still don't know. A Sith to this day, has not been defined in the films as to what they actually are. That, there was pro- the problem was really, my main problem with, with this and all the prequel trilogies, is the fact that there's really no characters, and indeed actors, that I like in it. You know, like, the reason I love Star Wars is mainly because of Harrison Ford, but the others are all entertaining as well. But there's not really anyone that I'm meant to care a damn about that is in any way no. charismatic. No. And yeah. the only person that was decent is killed off, and that's Liam Neeson's character. He was the he was the only chance. Like, yes, you know, he's charismatic. I will follow this guy to the end of the earth, and then he's dead. So I wasn't really feeling by the end of that. And also, the other decent character was Darth Maul, and he's killed off. He barely says so, a word. Basically, <laughs> two of the most potentially the most interesting characters are gone. And boy, was I really looking forward to episode two. That was going to be a barrel of laughs. Um, but it was going to get worse. But, well, you, you like but, Liam, yeah. Liam Nielsen. Again, George Lucas, scriptwriter to the rescue. It's not until he meets Shimi on Tatooine, he's introduced by character as a name as Qui-Gon Jinn. Until then, he has no name as far as the audience is concerned. Yeah. It's, it's one of the few films where you're yeah. supposed to know meta information going into it. I, it's I also felt like I just had, I kept, it kept throwing up questions like, why, why does not, you know, one, I was annoyed actually that R2D2 and C3 were in it. Because I understand exactly why they were in it. But I don't want to see these characters that I love just thrown into it and then the universe changed no, around it. So you that see, C-Thupio was made by Darth Vader. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it, I thought it was just a mess, really. A mess G- gentlemen, Sue is absolutely rolling around on the sofa in laughter at this point. What? Why the mirth? <laughs> just funny, funny, all the hate. <laughs> Well, you've got to understand, though, that, you know, we, for a Star Wars film, you know, something that you've cherished since your childhood, you are waiting for this to carry on, and you're waiting for it to go through the same feelings, and I would have forgiven it if it had just been okay, you know, but the fact is, it's so kind of pissed all over any kind of memory, just had so many annoying facets to it, that I, you know, I wished I'd never seen it. It's pure the fact that George Lucas is so utterly clueless. It, it makes you reevaluate everything he's done before in the past. And then you realize, in fact, he got lucky on Star Wars by giving himself a heart attack. And then he stepped away from Empire Strikes Back. Everything else he's ever touched has turned... George to Lucas, crap. great visionary, get him to do the effects, you know, and that's why I like the sound of the new film, because he's having input just on that level. But the guy cannot write. He cannot certainly direct. He, he cannot direct... He doesn't you know, understand he doesn't like working people. with actors. And so, unfortunately, it was no, we, we could see it all here. And it was going to get worse. Oh, boy, wait till you, you think, so if you think this is bad, you just wait until we get started. We're only just getting started with episode two. Come on, bring it on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, 
as I just to pull out of that morass of uh, seething <laughs> hatred, it's, um, not, it's just astonishment at the this stage. It's like right. someone's taken a dump on my that... wedding cake. I'm, I'm just not angry because it's so astonishing that you've done this at all. But you know, you're standing there with a big smile on your face, like you haven't done anything wrong. Are you are you functioning all right as a human being? Is that, why did no one intervene? <laughs> Everyone could see you were doing this. <laughs> I think one of the reasons I'm laughing so hard is because I was never a big Star Wars fan in the first place. So to me, it's just hysterical because I can't stand any of them. I'm like, well, whatever. I can't believe the passion and hatred that's coming out of this. But anyway, yeah, so one of the problems here is that uh, George Lucas decided to take magic and make it science. And in this year, apparently it was a much better idea to take science and make it somehow magical. Yes. I am, of course. Let's soothe ourselves by talking about the original Matrix movie. Ah, oh, isn't that better, everybody? Original that, and you the best. You want that sugar rush from the cinematic experience? The Matrix delivered it. Absolutely. I think I remember coming out of that. Now, that's what we talk about. You know, this is the year it changed it. Well, I don't, I don't know about the entire films in here, but I came out of the cinema and went, I've never seen anything like that before. That yes. I, I will remember this for a long time, and indeed I will still carry that feeling because it's very rare that you. Now I, I know the Wachowski brothers have been criticised because I know people, Wachowskis, please. I was going to say they're not brothers anymore. Oh, are they? Okay. The Did Wachowskis. you not know? Uh, uh, Larry had a sex change. He's now Lana Wachowski. So yes, it's now. I don't, Wachowski. Wachowski. It's now um, I don't know nothing Wachowski. about that. I apologise. Uh, I, I know honestly know nothing about that. Okay, the Wachowskis yeah, yeah. Um, were criticised. Certainly, people were more in the know with kind of manga and stuff. Now, this isn't original. You know, I've seen this story has been told, told out in manga anime for you know. But, but anyway, for me, who was not familiar with it, it was generally like a, a complete uh, mindfuck. I was like, I have never experienced anything like this before. I don't mean just the obviously the visual effects were groundbreaking, but just the story. You know, I was like, I had the plug pulled away from me. It was like, wow, that is some, that's kind of amazing. And uh, I haven't really ever had that experience since that point. I, I, I think I went to see this in the cinema like four times. Yeah. Mm, big fan of the Matrix. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I've swam in a soup of things where imagining that the entire world is some sort of computer simulation and I'm going to un- unplug myself and find myself in some futuristic sci- scientific world. It, it's a thought that's been in my head my entire life, just the sort of things I was into. It's sort of, it's derivative from those. So you and Descartes both, buddy. Well, exactly. So it wasn't exactly a cultural shock that a film was coming out that was about this. That said, Matrix still does it very, very well and takes its time to explain and set the premise he correctly. Is, so that the fact is, the world is not real is, a fact, in fact, almost a twist. See, here is the, here is the, the, the mind-blowing thing for me. There are people, I know there are people still in this world who don't like the Matrix movie, the original one, because they don't still don't understand what's going on because there are people who are incapable of understanding that thought. Wow. They're like, what happens then, then? It's something about the world's not real or something, but he's still in the world. So how is it not real? Like, oh, he's wow. wearing a sweater. I don't get it. What's that? And they really don't. They just don't understand the Matrix, the concept. 
They just don't understand it. Even when the film explains there it to them, people, they don't understand it. Are no. people that Darwin should be getting rid of? No, no. Darwin. There are some people who just can't get time travel. They go, but he traveled back in time before he was born. Why is he still alive? No, you don't get it. Oh, don't worry about it. It does, it does blow my mind, though, when people are like, yeah, it's, it's like a what if. What if what? They're the people that Darwinism should be taking Let's start small. Would you like a cup of tea? Uh, Not right now, thanks. But what if you did? What would I do then? But I don't. No. No. (laughs) What would would I do if you said, yes, please, I want a cup of tea? But I don't want a cup of tea. All right, fine, forget it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, the people who yeah, are just I, unable to actually, that, that it does wrinkle my brain that there are people who are unable to conceive of things that aren't yeah yes it's just weird but there we go they are around and uh, they, they a lot of people there are a lot of films made for those people no i was gonna say first and the best and it had the right level of philosophy in it the philosophy is not smothering me at this stage it's a very tight film i think that i mean this discussion will be had at length with the with the prequels but um, but for me, this is a very tight, complete film. It's kind of a perfect package, really. Yep. It says everything you need to say about the philosophy of it, as well as being a damn fine action film thrown in. It's it's a very watchable film, really. I think one of the reasons I, I like the film, and I really do like the film, um, is because, again, a lot of references back to something else that I really love, which is that kind of Alice in Wonderlandness, that kind of falling yeah. down the rabbit hole thing again, that kind of what is real, what is not real, what are you in control of, what you're not in control of. And I love all of that. So, yeah, I think it's marvellously done. I think it's brilliant. So, yeah. Um, I think there's not enough films that are both, you know, visually exciting and dramatic, but also make you think as well, you know, make you just consider things differently or open your mind up to things. It's definitely one of them. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say uh, that I essentially want to sort of have a sort of a Wachowski's show yeah. at some point. So I'm not going to go too far into this. But, um, I mean, I think I'd sum it up by saying that uh, people kind of, yeah, generally. Well, one of the things that I've heard often is that people find it very difficult these days to watch the first one. Because the sequels were so bad and it ruins the first film for them all. Oh, have a dab your tears, little nerd rager. But <laughs> often these people also pad with the fact that the whole of the rest of it was a complete ass pull like they just made it up like they went round they said we've got this idea for a trilogy and that they didn't actually have any idea what to do after the first one this is uh patently actually not true they knew what they wanted to do the problem is that after the first part which is quite simplistic in its moral Code because it's something we all understand, and, and you know, allegorical, good versus evil, dark versus light. You know, there's two forces in the world, and this is what you know, and the light should defeat the darkness, and all that. They then wanted to say, yeah, but in the sequels, and they knew this at the beginning. We want to go more eastern. We want to get into this in, in this this sort of more spiritual space where you can't just call things good and evil and See, the negativity kind of like, and a, I don't mind the sequels and I kind of yeah. understand that whole no, I, I dark and light kind totally, of blend and mix and everything's the same uh, I'm totally I, down with it I don't have any problem with that I think just in terms of execution the sequels yeah. weren't anywhere near as tight and they were overblown yeah. I'm going to sum it up with 
The problem is not that they didn't know what they wanted to do at all and they were making it up as they went along in that sense. It's that I think during the process they realised that they themselves were pushing themselves beyond the band of what... Because it's hard to make a film. And although they could read all of this philosophy and kind of understand on one level there is more to life than good people punching bad people in the face and kung fu versus robots and all that. There is more to it. Trying to convey that in an action blockbuster slightly got out of their hands. And it's like, yeah, but the point about it is they tried. They tried to do something so mentally warping, so difficult to explain to another human being. they did better than the guy who fucking did the film about the guy in the tree. Can you remember? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many films that that just fail on every level to do anything deep. And this one is not... This trilogy is not one of them. But we'll talk about that at another time. In fact, someone who's probably quite sick of being ignored for the sake of The Matrix, is David Cronenberg, who released Existence this year. See the, uh, yeah, see the parallel here, everyone? Yeah. Existence, yeah. The Matrix, yeah. I like this film. I've seen it several times. This is another film that's grown on me. When I first saw it, I thought, this is terrible. In fact, this is a film that, that, that I came to love more because I listened to the director's commentary and he explained things that I'd always found irritating in such a compelling way. I went, oh, actually, this film is a work of genius and not, as I thought, a poorly executed muddled pile of rubbish. Um, when you hear David Cronenberg go, well, I was trying to do this, you go, oh, I understand what you want to try to make a film about now. And then, then I was like, oh, now I love this film. This is a great film. But yeah, I mean, I think there is a certain thing to say. If you have to have the director explain it to you, maybe it's a little bit lacking. But I've very rarely had a director. I mean, I've had the same thing. I listened to the director's commentary on Lord of Illusions, and I totally understood everything Clive Barker was saying about what he's trying to do. However, at the end, I would say, that's a crap movie. It doesn't matter what you were trying to do and how you were trying to do it and what you were trying to achieve. I understand and sympathise with all of that, but it's still awful. Whereas if a director can actually make you go, oh, this is much better than I thought it was, then he must have done something right. Well, yes yes and no. At the end of the day, a film has to stand or fall on its own merits. You can't hand out a programme to everyone before the, the curtain goes up with a list of excuses and explanations about why things are the way they are. Sorry. Yeah, but I think when the director, no, when the director illuminates in that way, where you go, oh, actually, I, oh, it's I beautiful. Felt... It should like certainly that thing because may give you a deeper appreciation of a movie, but it still has to be good on its no, own no. merit to start. I feel after listening to that that I was being stupid, not that he was being particularly obtuse. If I bothered to watch it properly in the first place. I would have made sense to me. That's what I believe. Because when somebody else explained something else to me, and I totally <laughs> what I said, it was still rubbish. It was just now I knew why it was rubbish. I haven't seen that, but I don't remember anything confusing in it. I think I've got... No, I just, I just thought it was messy and it didn't really make any sense. I mean, because the thing was, one of the things was it was badly marketed and I fell for the marketing. The yeah. marketing was like, hey, wow, it's a crazy film about horror movie uh, uh, virtual reality. Woo! And David Cronenberg's like, well, and he didn't talk about the marketing, but it's like, David Cronenberg does not make that movie, so no. should have known from the beginning. And then when he said, well, no, this is a movie about 
how we construct identity and how important it is uh, context is to our identity. Like there's a bit where suddenly he's doing one thing and then he's in a fish factory gutting fish and he like looks down at the fish and the knife and he looks around at all the people and then he picks up a fish and he starts cutting them. Now to the stupid person that may look like what the hell is that? That doesn't even make any sense. And when David Cronenberg says, well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to say, look, if in ev- if your reality surrounding you is what you're seeing, then you'll behave that way. If it suddenly changes so completely and radically that you look like you're gutting fish at a fish factory, you look around and, you know, you can't distinguish what you're seeing from actual reality. How long do you think it would take you before you thought, oh, I'm not whoever I was two seconds ago. Yeah, I'm this guy in a fish factory gutting fish, having a daydream about that. Yeah. What a strange thought. I'll get back to gutting fish. And Dave Kramer said, what I find disturbing is I don't think it'd be that long. I think if you did find yourself in that weird situation... It's like like having a dream, though, isn't it? You can have very vivid dreams, and you you are that whatever situation, and you believe everything that's going on, however crazy, and then you wake up, and then it's gone. Yeah, it was so real for you at that time, but a few seconds later, you're just like, "Oh, here I am." So I think that's, you know, I think that's. Yeah, and I, that's well, a, nice, that's and up until that point, I just thought it was incoherent, and then when he yeah. said that, I went, "Oh, I've been stupid," and that's what I mean. It's little things like the way he said, you know, and and I thought it was really clever as well because he doesn't really do virtual reality. There's none of this like graphics all over the screen and no. uh, numbers flashing up. But he says, yeah, but then I had a thought about it and I was like, if you'll notice, whenever they're inside one of the existence simulations, I've used very flat cloth that hangs very heavy and very uh, wide tones on everything because right. I, didn't, I thought textures would be difficult and the, huh. the flop of cloth would be really difficult to simulate. That's so, interesting. Yeah, and, and I was like, I might have wow. To I might have to look at that. That's actually very smart. So, yeah, I mean, Existence uh, over time is going to be one of my favourite Cronenbergs ever uh, uh, when it started out as being that rubbish virtual reality redoing of Videodrome. I think there's a case to say that Videodrome and Existence are actually of a par, and yet Cronenberg fans much prefer Videodrome to Existence usually, which is a shame, I think. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a credible part of his earlier days, so... Yeah. Sorry, I was just like existenced out all over everyone now. That's... Ew. That's, <laughs> that's a Cronenberg movie. Juice is not good. <laughs> hey, it has a gun in it you load with teeth. That's that you can't possibly argue with that. That's awesome. A gun with um, bites, so you yeah. might say. Indeed. <laughs> now, of course, David Cronenberg, well known for horror. That isn't really a horror movie. In fact, I think that's one of the problems that the marketing department had. What is existence as a movie? It's not really science fiction. The clue is in the title, I feel. Oh, it is. It's, it's a sort of a, a, a sci-fi fantasy horror thriller. Um, don't know. Can't put it in a box. It's a Cronenberg movie. Marketing droid. Yes, I think Cronenberg probably says it all, really. You know, you know, you're either a fan or you're not. You know what you're expecting when you see anything by David Cronenberg. Uh, interestingly, uh, on the same tip of movies that are really hard to categorise, The Ninth Gate came out in 1999. It did. Does anyone remember this? No. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp has acting kind of really. I mean, he's not. 
it's very mainstream for him. We're used to seeing him and doing all these oddball characters with Tim Burton, and he. It's interesting that you should say it's very mainstream. Well, for him, uh, the film is. Explain a further what you mean by this. I mean that he is well. He, he normally plays much more eccentric characters. That's what I mean. I wasn't really relate, alluding to the film. Oh, he's right. more convention as a character. You know, just how his portrayal is fairly com- is a fairly conventional acting role. We're used to seeing him. You know, kind of chewing the scenery and being weird and strange in Burton's films. That's all. But the actual right. film itself. Oh, it's bonkers. But they, they, it's a bit of a shame. Uh, everyone familiar with The Ninth Gate? You familiar with this movie, Ian? No. Uh, I'm just looking up now. Roman Polanski. Yes. Uh, it's a Roman. It's one of the last ro- uh, big Roman Polanski movies that uh, came across with Johnny Depp in it. And basically, he's looking up pages from a book written by the devil that will do some kind of thing like possibly open a gate to hell if you put them together in the right way but there are forgeries and then people get murdered and there are satanic cultists and the thing about it is right that some of the big problems with this movie are one what happens at the end who knows nobody cares not even not even Roman Polanski who wrote it cares what happens at the end some stuff happens we're not sure what it is. Then in the beginning it kind of meanders quite a bit. Plus it is directed like an episode of Midsummer Murders or Inspector Morse. It looks like an ITV TV drama through and through. It just happens to be a weird ITV TV drama about a weird bookseller who's involved with satanic cultists and a book written by the devil. But it has that kind of... And that's the weirdest thing about this movie is people talking about these high concept supernatural things in this weird kind of, I'm about to knock off for tea in the canteen, I might see some people with, from Coronation Street while I'm there, kind of tone of it. So, so it's a film that's odd by what it is, not anything to do with its own pretensions to oddness. So yeah, I just thought I would mention that, as this is a year of, of very weird kind of, yeah, there's quite a lot of, I mean, this is one of the things. These days, I think it's no secret, horror has got itself in a bit of a rut. Whereas in this year, we've got like Existence, we've got that ninth gate, we've also got Ravenous. I was going to watch it last night, but I'd have had to pay to watch it. And as it's about cannibalism, I didn't think I'd encourage the wife, really. <laughs> she likes to it's eat. Okay. It's okay, it's not the best thing I've ever seen. But Ravenous? Uh... It's not really a horror movie, it's a satire. Yes. And I think if you view it, I thought it was brilliant because I viewed it as a satire. Well, if you go in and you want horror, you're going to be a bit disappointed. I think I got it like a bit too late, that satire thing. It's one of those films that I watch while I'm working, so I'm not really giving it my full attention. Oh, you should really just really watch it. It's got some really crazy good stuff in it, that film. Uh, talking of Johnny Depp being weird, Sleepy Hollow came yes. out. Yes. Uh, nice. Good decapitations in that movie. And Emperor Palpatine again. Yes. Uh, I, I, I actually, I very much like Sleepy Hollow. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's Tim Burton by the, by the numbers. I mean, it's got everything there that he's into. But, you know, I, it's creepy. It kind of looks great. All this kind of weird, subdued, strange, misty, feels clammy, the film. Just the kind of, the colours and the atmosphere of it. And of course, very reminiscent of kind of old school, kind of British kind of horror as Tim Burton. It's got a, a love for all that kind of stuff. Good cast. Kind of fun stuff, dark stuff. I like it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, I think, one of the last things that I would identify by Tim Burton that isn't just a bit... I think it's the last, very last thing before he starts to edge into self-parody. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, and, and even at the time it was a bit, well, it's very Burton-y. You'll come out feeling all Burtoned up, you know. And after that, it just forgets it's ridiculously Burton-y. He is, he's not taking the rise out of himself. He is becoming incredibly self-indulgent. And so that's, uh, it's that line between those two phases I think. Uh, just to say, I mean, it's weird that all these films begin with the letter S. The last horror sort of directions we had in 1999 was Stigmata and Stir of Echoes. Gabriel Byrne again. Yes, Gabriel Byrne playing a priest, I believe, that time. Instead so of he's playing played, the devil. He's hedged his bets there, hasn't he, really? Yeah, played both sides of the fence. Uh, you love, like, Stir of Echoes, I don't do you? I do like Stir of Echoes, yeah. Um, I kind of like the fact that, you know... Somebody gets something awakened in them by hypnosis, and you know, all of a sudden, Kevin Bacon's seen the ghost of a girl in his basement, and you know. Yeah, I think. Oh yes, that's the one. I we think that it's was kind of underrated. Reason. I think people forget how underrated that. Was. I think it, people kind of forget that film and kind of. Well, I think in the, the problem that Stir of Echoes has is that it came out in the same year as The Sixth Sense, Existence, yeah. The Night's Gate. There's all this kind of crazy, yeah, audacious. There's better, there's I'm not saying better necessarily. No, but I'm just saying there are better, more bodily horrors out there if you want a body horror. But I think as a creepy little gets under your skin I horror, think, I think yeah. Stir of Echoes is a nice or, little yeah. film. What I was trying to say was that people were kind of taken in this palette at the time, weirdly, I don't know why, mm-hmm. of just all this really weird, out there, crazy, yeah. is it even really horror, fancy type yeah. stuff. And Stir of Echoes is a ghost movie. Yeah. Now, if you put Stir of Echoes out today, yeah. it would dominate the box office yeah. because everything else that's on the horror menu is pretty terrible, to yeah. be honest. And this would compete with those. It was just the wrong time for that kind of movie. It's not a bad film, I though. Mean, it is a good film. I think if you watch it again and you like a ghost story, it's a good ghost if, story. If you put it next to the crazy, wacky antics of Stigmata... I mean, good lord. I know, but I think if you watch it now, um, as you said, I'm, compared to some of the films yeah. out now, it's a yeah. good film. Stigmata is a terrible movie, by the way. Yeah. Uh, just, it's it's another way. Yeah, something happened weirdly. It, it's, I mean, Scream has already happened in the past in the 90s. But for some reason, in the late 90s, I've suddenly realised there's all these weird quasi-horror movies before it all goes completely tits up. None of them are particularly successful. I think this may have been what's killed weirdo horror for the time being, and it, it sorely needs to make a comeback. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in, in, there's an embarrassment of riches if you want quirky horror this year. And uh, talking of being embarrassed, or maybe embarrassment, or just shame, or swearing, or things like that, the, uh, the last thing that made this the year that changed movies is, of course, South Park, bigger, longer and uncut at the cinema. South Park at the cinema. Justin, please, for the audience at home who may have forgotten this, what is your reaction to the South Park in 1999 (laughs) film? Well, well, I have to say this with a kind of a a brief explanation. I was... I was not, I, I actually had a huge problem with South Park when it first came out because I didn't have it on, uh, the main physical problem was that it was on Sky, I think it was on, it was something I didn't get, no, it was on Channel 4, wasn't it? 
Yeah. But anyway, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. My friends were really into it. I started watching it, and I was horrified by the animation, because it was just... I didn't really get South yes. Park, as you can tell. Not the, the content, stage. not the swearing, not, not the gross-out humour. My no, God, no. the drawings! I, was, I am offended. Yeah, I was, the legs don't even move! It took me a while to, to understand, but I was so unlike, they're making this crap? On TV, this, but that, you know, I was completely reactionary and didn't, anyway, so it took me a long time to actually appreciate South Park. So I didn't actually see it at the cinema, I did see it later. But I remember getting the DVD because the songs are amazing. Is <laughs> 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 as you imagine, it's going to, it's like, well, you know, there are some restrictions on TV, but this is a film and, you know, we're going to have fun. And I, I believe there was, uh, yes, I believe there was, uh, some people who might have been surprised to the point where they might be traumatized by it all. As, as many people have pointed out that it, it creates a sort of watershed in, in this half part history. Because, of course, yes, on television, they're not allowed to say certain things. So they get to make a movie and they go, well, obviously the whole topic of that movie has to be that we're finally allowed to say these things. So yeah. let's say all of them and let's do all the things that <laughs> Joe would not allow us to do every last one. We have to make a big list and then we have to do every one of them. Saddam Hussein, Sodomizing Satan? Check. Hello. <laughs> it's like... Should you... Uncle. Uh, yay! <laughs> so, yes, uh, it, is, it is just... A, 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 a watershed. I mean, I didn't really watch South Park before this. And I think it's because if you if you were like, oh, everyone's meant to find this funny because it's offensive, and you watch the first few episodes of season one, even Trey Parker and Matt Stone don't like those episodes. It has become a genius paragon of, of satire in the modern world because it has more to it than construction paper and swearing. But those are surely the base ingredients of, uh, of South Park. You like South Park, Ian? Yes, well, certainly uh, of the time I was greatly into it. I haven't really seen it for a great number of years, although I'm gratified to know it's still going somehow. It's like Simpsons. If it ever stopped, I'd feel sad somehow, but I don't really watch it. Well, I think one of the things with South Park is that the most trying part, I think, for the for Parker and Stone is the fact that, I mean, it's not terribly expensive to make even these days when they do bits of computer animation. So it's not, you know, it, that's not the important part. The bit that I think they find very challenging is that when they make a season of South Park, they write it, you know, literally two weeks before it's going to air and make it all at that time. So in the last season that I saw, which was last year, they actually had to skip a week because something happened because they couldn't get the show ready in time. They had some kind of incident happen. So it's really raw. I mean, they make it right up the edge. But, yeah, I don't think that they're ever really going to make a move to cancel it because it's hugely hugely popular and very cheap to produce. And yeah. they have not done the Simpsons thing of really radicalising the production process to have all like 3d swooshy things and you know the animation equivalent of special effects they've just kind of occasionally use it i mean some of the some of the standout episodes are the ones where they prove that they can draw like you know we are real animators we could do like an anime thing or we can you know do visual parodies of marvel comics and stuff like that we, it's just the south park is this it's crude construction paper circles and shapes 
swearing at each other. That's what it is. That's why it's like that. We chose to make it like that. That's not because we can't. Yeah, draw. I mean, I go through periods when I have been I haven't watched it for a long time, but when I did watch it, I tended to go through binges. I tended to try and hunt it down on the internet and just just have solid South Park athons. But it's it's never been like I've not since like the very early mid nineties when it was first on. It's not been something I've enjoyed on a weekly basis. Yes. No, I mean, I think I think it is. I, I quite like. I mean, I think it would be better. Well, ironically, I think it would be better suited to a sort of a, a Netflix distribution model where they just dump twelve episodes on every so often. Except, of course, that doesn't go with their. We want it to be up to the minute. But the thing about it is, some of the older episodes are actually quite classic, like the backyard wrestling one and the one where the internet sexual gets switched off. Sexual panda. harassment panda. So it's weird that they that comes in about being cutting edge in the moment. But then afterwards, the shows are still were much beloved because they're still funny. So it's a bit weird that they have that hang up. But but there we go. That is life. Uh, so we have come the whole way through 1999. Gentlemen, have we left anything out as far as you are concerned? Let me have a look. Uh, There's a moment where people are thinking about these things. <laughs> not really. Toy Story 2, yay. Uh, moving on. You know what? If I haven't said it, it obviously didn't mean that much to me. Right, well, there we go. So if anyone is outraged that we've completely skipped over the Green Mile, for example, where might they go to uh, express their ire at uh, our ignoring of this Stephen King, Frank Darabont classic. Oh, my God, was Love Stinks this year? Oh, my <laughs> God. Yes, well, one place you could go to eventual Iowa would be our Facebook page, which you can find on uh, Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcaster, as well as links we find interesting. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids dot podomatic dot com, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download to your PC for dark reasons of your own. But this is anywhere our most recent podcasts concerning the 90s can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, which cover decades prior to this, you must go to... LeoStableford.com, where you can find a full back catalogue of all of our uh, all of our uh, previous podcasts, among other things, including possibly an essay on uh, the cultural relevance of... Deep Blue Sea, directed by Rennie Harling, starring uh, Thomas Jane and Samuel L. Jackson, about intelligent sharks. But maybe you really? can't find that, because I haven't written it, no. I was going to no, say, I, never, I checked your I, site today, it wasn't there. I've never even seen Deep Blue Sea. I've been assured that it's terrible. It is terrible. It is said by the wife. Uh, I, I, I did see a Mythbusters episode about it recently, where they debunked most of the ways um, they blew up sharks. But uh, but if people want to see pictures of hyper-intelligent sharks fighting Samuel L. Jackson, where might they find those, Justin? <laughs> hey, family. Uh, you'll find them, example, other examples of which will be on my DeviantArt page under my actual name, Justin Wyatt. Uh, I might even add to that a picture of uh, for posterity for Robin Williams in Bicentennial Man, which I also feel my... I, 
fail to mention, but I rather like. Oh, well, that's, well, you can save that for the inevitable Robin Williams. Yes, let's, let's do that. It does deserve a tribute, so let's do that. Gentlemen, yes. gentlemen, let's all join hands for a moment. Sirs, we have completed the 90s. And ladies. Oh, and, and ladies. ladies. Well, yes. Gentlemen and honorary gentlemen, we have completed <laughs> the 90s. I just want to share this moment. We've come a long way. How do we feel about all this? Um, I'm a bit disturbed that my wife, uh, being called an honorary gentleman, has put on a fake moustache. You don't need to wear a fake moustache, Sue. But I like it. I get to twirl it. Anyway, yes. Um, it is, yes, it is a momentous time. 1999 changed movies. Uh, the 90s are over. I, I can't say that I'm sorry to see the 90s go. Uh, and I'm quite immensely glad of this, of this achievement. I mean, we still have, obviously, the, uh, tedious business God. of doing the top five. I am uh, struggling with number three. Everything else is fine. Number three, pain in the ass. I, I haven't, until we've done the year shows, I don't even look at it. But obviously, the, the following thing in terms of shows is that we're going to take a finger pause to consider our lists. Uh, so we'll be filling in with some other material and then. Of course, uh, last Friday was the release of uh, Sin City and... Um, and uh, Lucy in the UK, and so that officially marks the final releases of our summer season. So the summer retrospective uh, will be coming along when those drop out of the top UK top ten. So that's something we've got to think about. So basically, the future for the eighties kids looks like a lot of list shows. Justin, um, any any feelings on the passing of the nineties? Well, it's just that actually the, the one thing it does hammer home is just one more milestone before we'll be finished doing these yearly shows, really. You know, when I first when I jumped on board, it, you know, it seemed like there would be years and years of obviously talking about these things. And it's just one step closer to not having any. Yes, uh, it is shocking to think we only have 11 more year shows to go in total. That's yeah. quite That's, weird. You know, well, speaking, we've got 10 more year shows and then a sort of. And then the rest, before yes. we start to disappear up our own decade. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But, I mean, obviously, before we uh, approached the 90s, we did that kind of show where we ran through the 90s with our arm out in the supermarket. Yes. And kind of went, this is what we're going to do. All I say, when I did that, I remember feeling somewhat kind of, I don't know, I would, you know the 80s was a, was a no-brainer for me. I know it already started with you guys, but I was jumping in and... You know, that was... Indeed, Justin, you joined us in 1980. So, but that was very enjoyable because, you know, incredibly nostalgic. I must admit, when I did that 90s show, there was some amount of trepidation. However, having re-examined them, I have found that actually there's quite a lot in the 90s that I actually fondly remember. Uh, More so than I remember. I don't think that's going... I don't have the same trepidation for the noughties because I can think of lots of things that I'm going to enjoy talking about. So... It's kind of bittersweet for me. It's like feels like something is moving towards the end, but that last, you know, period of the examining films is going to be great fun. There's going if to be I'm, a- yeah, if I'm sad about anything to do with the '90s, it's that weirdly, uh, you know, the production of movies has ramped up over time. So we get more and more movies the further we go away. And the advent of the multiplex means that, you know, 1999 is one of the first years where they really try and cram that summer full of of chock full of uh, cinematic goodness uh, to get people into the multiplexes again and again over the summer. Um, so we're making a lot more movies. But one of the things I've noticed is that 
weird movies, off-the-wall movies, movies that in the 80s could surprise everyone by becoming big films, despite the fact that they're utterly bonkers. That's kind of sloped off. You've got a lot more safe bets. Yeah, the second round opens up a lot. Yeah, that's that's what I'm sad about, is that even though, in fact, many of the weird movies are terrible... I mean, and by the 90s, it got very decadent in that that portion. We've discussed several of them in, you know, End of Days. That is definitely a weird movie, but it's not got anything particularly good about it, except that it's weird. But I, I yeah, I do mourn the passing of the possibility that you might go and see something and just be like, what the hell was that? That was awesome. Um, and, and I think that there's less and less of that as time goes on, but this is what we shall discuss. For me, it's very, it's, because it's so much of these films are so tied up with the time of where I was. And, and university was only three years, but in many ways, 90s means university to me. And the 90s feeling, that vibe, it's like I can remember my own youthfulness. I know my early 20s. I remember the friends I had at the time, which I just do not have now. It's like this little glass bubble of my life that's sealed off forever. And, you know, sure, we can go catch up with your old 90s friends on Facebook, but it's not the same of actually just being there at that time, doing those things, and then it's gone. So there we go. It's bittersweet as well, but at the same time, um, I don't know. It was what it was. So, uh, yes, Goodbye to the 90s and uh, goodbye from us, I suppose. Until next time. Yeah. Bye. 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 Oh, deja vu. What could that mean?